Namaste and good evening to all of you. As I promised the last week, it is time to start the cycle of teachings, of satsangs, of lectures. If there will be questions about them, they are very welcome on Tuesdays when I'm participating in the Tuesdays in which I'm in the questions and answers, or at some other occasions where questions are taken and answered. So as I said, I will start looking into the teachings of Jesus. I mentioned already last time, as well as in the other old lecture, Jesus in the eyes of yoga, why the teachings of Jesus are particularly relevant for us in yoga and in Agama in particular. And uh, about 10 years ago, I had done some commentaries on the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, the first two of the Gospels. And at that time, I simply went through the different stories there, some of them of greater importance, some of them of smaller importance. Going uh, through the third of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, which is the longest of all the Gospels, the one which goes into most detail of the story, would be inevitably repeating some of those stories. That's why I will not do that. I will not just make a reading of the Gospel with some commentaries and so on. What I'm interested to do this time, I'm just interested in selecting some of the actions, words, teachings of Jesus as coming from a, the least you can say about Jesus as coming from a super developed spiritual being. If you cannot accept Jesus being more than that, then he is at least that. And um, trying to explain them from the standpoint of yoga from the standpoint of chakras, energy, yama and niyama, the process of evolution of the human being as we see it in yoga, so that you can see that under the guise of this peculiar formulation, because Jesus is coming from a peculiar environment, he is the follower of Abraham and Moses and Elijah and prophets of yore, and this monotheistic religion established by the Jews in those days, Palestine, and more than a thousand years before Jesus lived on the face of the earth, this religion has, of course, its specific terminology. It has a specific atmosphere and energy to it. It has its own uh, lore, and thus... It's very interesting because Jesus stays in that Lord because he's born there, he's part of that. And at the same time, it's beautiful to see how the universal metaphysical truth goes through him and it makes it a universal truth, not just a local truth of some local faith. So, without further ado, because I tried to tell you, and I will, it will come up so often, inevitably it comes up often with Jesus, with the way in which Jesus behaves and teaches. 
I said, you know, I, I said a few things about the way Jesus goes, such as being uncompromising, giving aspiration. You know, like Swami Shivananda tells you something about yoga and evolution, and many people get in on fire when they read Swami Shivananda. Jesus is like three times putting you more on fire than Swami Shivananda himself. Other Indian philosophers or no, like Buddha says there are four noble truths and life is a misery and suffering and I discovered a way to end this suffering. But many people say, come on, talk for yourself. Life is very nice for me. You know, I'm very happy. So like I can't even agree with the first noble truth that life is pain, uh, life is suffering. Then what Buddha tells me is like, yeah, sure, it's interesting. This guy Buddha, because he says we should save the whales, you know, that part I like of what Buddha says, because it fits with Greenpeace, you know. But for the rest, you know, like the fact that Buddha says you are living on a prison planet and samsara is a misery and you should try to get out of this, people say, come on, my life is good. I don't know what he's talking about. Therefore, like how much aspiration does Buddha give to people who follow in the footsteps of the Buddha. There are people who call themselves Buddhist, but if you would make a psychological 20-question inquiry on whether they want to reach nirvana, most of them would be terrified by the very idea of nirvana. You know, like, I'm Buddhist, but I don't want to go to nirvana because I want to win the Super Bowl lottery and to become a super rich person and to live a life of luxury and enjoyment. You know, it's like, is that what Buddha said? No. So do we actually follow in the footsteps of Buddha? Hardly. Many people who call themselves Buddhists don't. Exactly as many people call themselves Christians don't. But what I'm trying to say is that Buddha presents a message and how much aspiration does it generate? In some, some people who happen to think like Buddha, some people who are spiritually ripe, the coin falls in the box and they say, yeah, this guy is right. It can sound weird for the others, but what Buddha said is gospel. For me, it's the reality. With Jesus, things are coming more from the heart and Jesus is more fiery. Jesus doesn't just tell you, oh, let me tell you four truths which I know from God. He's talking to you. He constantly prods at people and he says, do this, don't do that, stop this nonsense, how much foolishness is there? So he is very active in this way and that's why Jesus is very, very motivating. Again, in yoga, in Kashmiri Shaivism, you know, Kashmiri Shaivism is fantastic, it's adorable, it's wonderful. But Abhinavagupta talks for people who are metaphysically awakened. Even his disciple, Kshemaraja, said, My guru, Abhinavagupta, was like this. He said things once, and if you understood, well. And if you didn't understand, tough luck. Like, not necessarily. Abhinavagupta doesn't say, Come on, let me convince you. Let me say it to you in another way, so that I can motivate you on the path. Abhinavagupta says, If you are motivated on the path, you climb on vertical walls, you eat shit, you do whatever you have to do. Now, it's not mine to motivate you. I'm just giving you the information which comes from the masters of yore. Jesus is the one who awakens your soul, who pours 
the water of life on you and kind of you say, oh my God, how was I living my life? What was I doing until now? So that's why his style is very peculiar because in that environment, the style was to a certain extent before like the prophets of the Old Testament were fiery or firebrand preachers in many ways. And um, Jesus follows in the, as we go through it, you will start feeling some of this energy, because in some places I will quote directly some things. So the first action which we hear about Jesus is the weird story after when Jesus was about 12 years old, after which, by the way, we lose any track of Jesus for 18 years. Jesus got crucified when he was 33 years and a half. So he lived not even 34 years. 18 years is more than half of his life. More than half of the life of Jesus, including when he was 16, 18, 20, 25. Really big years. The years where he was burning as a young lion, as a young spiritual lion are simply not known. Either Jesus did his things in India and Tibet, as some people believe, or some Jesus simply was holding his horses because he wanted to act, he felt intuitively that he had to act exactly at a given time, like when the right time, when he felt the momentum. It's difficult to speculate. You can like Paramahamsa Yogananda, you can try to make some yama with Jesus to find out what was in the heart of Jesus, what kind of person Jesus was and what he was doing. And again, even then, you don't know 100% scientifically if you got it right. No, but at least you can try to intuitively feel uh, those things. But point is that we see Jesus in one short episode in his childhood, where suddenly he shines through, you see something of the greatness which is going to come, and he's 12 years old, and then there is not one word of him until he is 30, and he comes and visits John the Baptist. So between the first episode which I'm reading today and the second, there is a distance of 18 years of question marks, which again... um, Are these question marks really, really, really important and relevant? Yes and no. It's more an intellectual curiosity. I remember I was participating, I was told words by uh, a man who was considered to be a very, very spiritually accomplished person in Christianity. And he said that there was a dialogue. He participated to a dialogue. And people said, if you would have Jesus personally in front of you, for five minutes, you could ask him just one question. What would be the question that you would ask of Jesus if he would personally come to you, show up to you physically today? And uh, somebody among the people who came up with questions was, where were you in the missing 18 years? And out of all those questions, actually they found out that only one was relevant, that even this one, what does it matter where Jesus was for 18 years? What does that change for you today, now? doesn't change anything. The right question to ask was, what should I do? 
What shall I do now that I have Jesus right here? That, because that's the only practical thing. The only practical thing is what shall I do now? But not where it came from. It's exactly like somebody who sees a car accident and some person is bleeding to death and you are asking, but who was guilty? What does it matter who was guilty? One person is bleeding to death. You have to go and stop the bleeding or else the person will die. That's the thing to do right now. Your life is flowing right now. You are bleeding to death. Your death is coming second after second right now. So the urgent thing to do is fix it. Fix this. Don't ask, oh, but where did it all come? And what did Jesus do? That's his business what he did in the 18 years. Your problem is what shall I do tonight, tomorrow? No, what, that's important for me. That's why, of course, this is one of the mysteries. It is expectable that a person like Jesus, a person like Krishna, a person like people who are famous for being avatars and having a divine origin, it's obvious that these people, you don't understand everything. It's obvious that there will be a certain amount of mystery associated with their personality, life, actions, simply because they represent something which is superhuman, above human. In the first episode which we have about him, Jesus is coming with his parents to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the Mecca of the day for the Jews. So in a festival, in a fasting, in something, the parents come to Jerusalem. Around that age, teenage boys were getting their bar mitzvah and others. So maybe it was related with some religious confirmation or something. It doesn't matter. It's not said in detail. The fact is that Jesus, who apparently at that time lived in Nazareth, came with his parents on a visit to Jerusalem. And they did whatever they did. They sold pigeons and they took lambs to the altar of God and whatever they did. And eventually, as the parents went back, they somehow lost Jesus. And they found a day later almost that Jesus was not in the group. They went with a group of pilgrims, and when they came back, somehow Jesus was not there. Of course, that's a bit strange. It shows that this group community thing was strong, because normally parents would hold their child by the hand, but they assumed that Jesus was there, which shows a pretty detached attitude from the parents in those days, like children were being raised by the collectivity, by the group, and Jesus was supposed to be like in a kindergarten with the other children, and somehow they say, by the way, where is he? Oh my God, you know, I think we dropped him in Jerusalem. And then they had to go back to find him. And then they found him in the temple, in the big temple, where, as it is said, that uh, everyone who heard him there in the temple, people, who, he was joining the conversation at the age of 12. No? And uh, everybody who heard was about was amazed and, at his understanding and his answers. He was a sort of a whiz kid, a prodigy, a genius. It's never been explained properly. And this episode doesn't explain it if Jesus at that time was aware of 
100% who he was and what he was going to do 18 years later. People have uh, very split opinions about this and therefore I can give you only a personal opinion on this. In the world of yoga, very seldom some people had a prior knowledge of their spiritual greatness. For example, the great Indian yogini Ma Ananda Mai mentioned, among others, in the autobiography of Yogananda, a famous spiritual figure of India who died in 1982. Ma Ananda Mai claimed in her interview with Paramahamsa Yogananda that she had had states of samadhi, of superconsciousness, and therefore of knowing the answer to the question, who am I, when she was two years old, already. So, basically, when we look at the history of Mananda Mai, there we don't see the history of a Buddha. Buddha is a person who doesn't know who he is, lives until the age of 29 in a palace, in luxury, It's true his father is cheating big time and is protecting him from everything because there is a strange prophecy which says that this young boy could go, could take the path of the jungle and become a yogi and his father doesn't want that. The family wants you to be a carpenter and have sex with your wife and make three kids. Then your dad is happy. If you come to Swami Vivekananda in the jungle in Thailand, your father goes apeshit because now you are not becoming the medical doctor which your family wanted you to become. So it's the same thing ever since history. It was the same in the time of Buddha. Why the father of Buddha didn't want his son to be a yogi? A yogi is a total hobo, is a loser, is a madman. Is a, you know, it's like we want him to be prince, king. You know, he's everybody. The family wants to rule over your future and to tell you, you shall be a doctor, you shall be a carpenter. And when you are not, then that's the first place where the family starts getting mad with your choices. So, Buddha discovered the reality of life when you saw a dead man, a sick man, an old man. And then Buddha got a cold shower. It was a moment of awakening where Buddha said, wait a second. This world is not like my father has shown it to me for 29 years. This world is shit and I just discovered it today. And then he was so shocked about this other side of reality that there is so much pain and ugliness and dirt and unpleasantness in the world and ignorance and all the rest that he decided to do something about it and he had a strong spiritual heritage he was an old soul and he decided I'm going to find an answer to this and intuitively he felt he could and then he ran in the jungle and he did six years of meditation and after six years one day sitting under that Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya he got the answers. So Buddha is the example of a very advanced soul who when he was 28 years old couldn't remember anything. If you ask him, Buddha, who are you? He would have said, I am Prince Gotama sitting here and getting a fun life. So 
he did not remember. And that is the case with 99, maybe 99.9 of the spiritual seekers. There exists a strange, strange superstition among people writing spiritual literature, and it's an act of cowardice, in which people suppose that if you are spiritual, and if you are meant for some greatness, oh, even when you are five old, you knew it already. My experience in spirituality, including everything which I've read about great people and heard from spiritual practitioners, says that this is complete nonsense. 99 or more percent of the people who have reached greatness in spirituality, five years before starting their practice, didn't know shit about what was going to happen. They were special men and women. Like they could have been specially intelligent, specially loving, specially compassionate, specially balanced. They were maybe special in one or several ways. Because, of course, an apple which is about to be ripe is different from the other apples which are not ripe. So I'm not saying that Buddha was not 99% a very special person already. He just took that cold shower plus six years of meditation and then he was the Buddha. So you must be special for that. But when he was 25 years old, he didn't have a clue about what the spirits in the invisible worlds were doing or what the laws of evolution and karma were or what about he what he was meant to do in this universe on this planet in that century and that is true about swami shivananda and that is true about sri aurobindo and that is true about everybody else some authors in my opinion in a wrong way they try to bring always things to demonstrate that people who became spirit they were like born for it and you could see it from childhood but this is a way of cowardly putting away your effort I remember when I was young, I was witnessing some of my spiritual teachers and they were very powerful in different ways. Not all of them in the same way. Like for example, most of my spiritual teachers when I was young, they did not have any problem with their emotions. I'm taking one which is very popular in Agama. No, because people are complete slaves and wrecks because of their... That's not what I have learned. When I've looked at my early spiritual teachers, there were people for whom emotions simply did not exist. Like uh, somebody said something bad about you, and now you feel like shit. It doesn't exist. You can simply switch it off and flush it down the toilet. It doesn't exist. You don't get turned off or something by some emotion. Emotions are like some unworthy shit 
that only kindergarten kids get stopped by their emotions. I cannot do sun salutations because my mother didn't love me much enough and therefore I feel unworthy and I'm unloved. And I need to go to psychotherapy before I do yoga. Sure, you'll spend 34 lives, lifetimes doing psychotherapy and then when you'll come to yoga you'll be exactly like that. Like you'll say enough psychotherapy, now I'm doing yoga. Because either my mother loved me or not, she was an ignorant, stupid person, and I'm not going to compromise my search of the truth because my mother was limited or not in her approach. But did she traumatize you? Yes, she did, and I couldn't care less. That chapter is closed. Now I'm working on my third eye to see Shiva. That's what I do. If my mother was nice to me or not, that chapter is flushed down. Does it still leave some marks in your emotional body? Maybe. Like my beard is not uh, cleansed. You know, I should have come here. They are filming me. And I should have come here with a nice cut beard. So maybe I should stop the satsang and go and fix my beard right now. You know? It's like it's nonsense. My beard is whatever it is. If I have been negligent and I didn't look in the mirror and I didn't take care of it, what has that got to do with the message of Jesus? Oh, but you don't feel good about your beard. I can as well switch that feeling off. So, what I'm trying to say here is the following. That... uh, It's true... That people who do spiritual quest are special in a way. Because according to the Hindu and Buddhist beliefs, if you are a hardcore spiritual seeker, you may be here just out of curiosity. Or you may be here because of you want to catch something good from yoga. But there are some of you in this hall who are considering themselves Spiritual seekers. Like they have made some choices inside. For those people, automatically, of course you are special. But when I was talking to my teachers, when I was young, I was amazed because they could do things. They were very controlled, you know, they were not collapsing easily from the problems of daily life, you know, like they were very detached from a lot of things. Now, I've seen one of my teachers when his mom died, his mom passed away unexpectedly, you know, and so on. And I could see how he reacted, you know, how did he, how did a great yogi react when his mom died like this? Did he get started rolling on the floor and crying and like, was he attached was he ignorant? Was he, you know, or was he constructive, spiritual, and everything? So, many of these yoga teachers, when their disciples would ask them, you know, about something, they said, Look, take me as an example. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. What a human being does, another human being can also do. So, why don't you do like me? And then people would always say, yeah, Walter, but you are Walter. 
People always find a defense for not doing spiritual efforts. They say, ah, Walter is Walter. Swami Vivekananda is Swami Vivekananda. You cannot be expected to do what Swami Vivekananda does. Funny thing is that Swami Vivekananda, this one, actually expects you to do what he does and more than what he does. So cut that crap. Because the same kind of crap is used about the spiritual masters. Ma Ananda Mai, she was in Samadhi when she was two years old. And she knew who she was. No, you, can't co- you can't compete with that. Did you know who you were when you were three years old? You didn't. So what Ma Ananda Mai, that's a way of saying I will never be par with Ma Ananda Mai. Because she was a higher class. She was a special caste of people. And I'm not that kind. There have been spiritual people that have had glimpses in their childhood. Not only Mahananda Mai. Paramahamsa Yogananda, in a recent documentary made about his life, seems to have said to some pupils that he realized even that he that who he was, his condition, even when he was in the womb of his mother, that he had conditions of self-awareness when he was not even born physically, when he was a fetus. Jiddu Krishnamurti, the controversial spiritual teacher in England, was discovered by the Theosophical Society when he was six years old and he was experiencing states of samadhi. And the Theosophical Society immediately adopted him and they wanted to make him their messiah. Like, you are going to be our king because you can, you know, like Anibezant and Lidbitter and all this, they were talking about God. But they couldn't see God. None of them was enlightened. While Jiddu Krishnamurti was just a six-year-old boy from India who could see God, who could be in states of Samadhi. So like, Hallelujah, you know, we discovered the Messiah somewhere in the countryside in India, you know, and so on. So they tried, and he was the darling of the Theosophists for a while, and then he got fed up with them and he dropped them. And, but Jiddu Krishnamurti allegedly had states of Samadhi when he was six years old. So would it be impossible that Jesus was already an awakened spirit? When he was 12 years old, it's not impossible, but it doesn't feel right. Because I think he would have acted in a different way. A typical example of a young man who reached spirituality quite early in India was Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, who lived in the 7th, 8th century, the creator of the modern Vedanta the renewer of the Hinduism in the 7th, 8th century. Adi Shankaracharya reached the state of Samadhi when he was 16 years old. And he acted, he did Karma Yoga as a guru for another 16 years. And so Adi Shankaracharya left his body younger than Jesus and not crucified by anybody He was 32 years old when he put his legs together and he said, farewell, 
I've done my karma yoga, I came to do this. You're just 32 years old. Auf Wiedersehen. Sayonara, you know, I'm out of here. That's So, we have seen examples of people who have reached spiritual greatness young. Remember Buddha? Gautama Buddha was 35 or 36 years old. Buddha didn't do any spiritual work until he was 29 or 30. And then he started full on, full power. And by the age of 29, he couldn't remember anything. Like, I'm Buddha and I'm sitting here and wasting time. He didn't know he was the Buddha to come. Therefore, please remember this. 99% of the people that achieved greatness in any religion and spirituality and this world, when they started, they didn't know what was going to hit them. They just The only thing which they had was aspiration. Like these people were great seekers. They knew that something is amiss. They knew that something is wrong. They knew that the world cannot give you the answers that you are looking for. They knew that they had to do something special. They were old and wise even when they were young. And thus, they tried something else than most of the people on the street do. Yes, in this way, they were special. But they didn't know who they were. I personally would say that the dialogue which follows, the very, very brief episode in which Jesus is mysteriously forgotten by his parents and then he's found in the temple of all places, surely demonstrates that the spirit of Jesus was magnetically attracted to religion, to God, and therefore he was definitely a very special spirit. On the other hand, if Jesus, at the time when he said these words, he knew that 18 years later he was going to be the the man who would change history, I personally don't think it sounds like that. Therefore, I think that Jesus, like Buddha, like Swami Shivananda, and like many others, at some point he did some practice. What took Jesus one month probably takes other people 20 years. Like Jesus, because he was Jesus, practice might have gone incredibly quick because it was just a thin veneer of ignorance hiding the real nature of such a colossal being. So, again, Jesus was special and there would be differences. But strictly speaking, I personally don't think that Jesus, if would have met with Ramana Maharishi, and Ramana Maharishi would have said, who are you, young boy? He would have said, I'm consciousness and bliss without end. I'm Shiva. I'm Shiva. Like Shankaracharya, that's uh, the answer to that question of Adi Shankaracharya. Therefore, I think... And I would like to share a thing with you because we are at this time in this satsangs I'm trying to show you how some secret laws of nature work. And why do I think that? 
because also the power of Jesus to move people is way too big for somebody who got it served on a silver tray like okay you are born enlightened now do your thing the funny thing is that the people who had that and the most simple examples are Mananda Mai and Jiddu Krishnamurti which I just mentioned and the very close example to them is the beloved Ramana Maharishi who didn't have a guru didn't practice a minute of yoga and when he was 17 years of age he just reached the state of samadhi in 30 minutes due to panic but so let's leave Ramana Maharishi on the second tier and let's stay with the first two Mananda Mai and Jiddu Krishnamurti have one thing in common they raved gibberish all their lives Nobody fucking understood what they were talking about. And when they died, they had zero enlightened disciples to sit on their chair and to continue their mission. A person who smoked and gave up smoking, coming to yoga or drinking, can make other people quit smoking and drinking because they have done it. If a person has not been smoking and tries to convince a person to quit smoking, their efficiency will be limited because they don't know what the smoker is going through. They don't know what the psychology of the smoker is and they don't know what the need of the smoker is and what the drama of the smoker is and what the temptation of the smoker is. That's why if a person has been ignorant and said, I'm 14 years old, I'm 16 years old, and I'm confused, and I don't know what the heck to do with myself, and life is a misery, and I know it's like... Then, and then that person read the Upanishads, or the Bhagavad Gita, or the words of Jesus, and suddenly that person said, oh my God, I want to do this, and then does it for five years, and something is happening, that person knows the way. That person comes out of ignorance into the light and can show the path to another one. But if you have states of samadhi when you are two years old, you imagine that everybody else should have. It's as natural, it's it's the truth. It's the reality with a capital R. So how come that nobody else can see it? Of course they can see it. It's right there. Robert Monroe was the owner of the capacity to do astral projection and lucid dreaming. He wrote, he created the Monroe Institute, and he wrote a legendary book in America called Journeys Out of the Body. And I, who was not doing astral projections when I was a teenager, I was wondering what is the great secret that Robert Monroe says in his book. I can sell you the book of Robert Monroe in 30 seconds. The whole book of Robert Monroe is 299 pages where he tells you where he has been in his astral body, which is just a teaser. And there is one page in that book where he says, how was I doing it? Oh, you lie down on your back. You kind of relax. He doesn't mention relaxation as a technique. 
And then you imagine that your astral body is turning like this on the right side. And actually your physical body lies on the back and your astral body goes like this. And then your astral body is free and the physical body is lying in bed. A million people have tried this shit. And it didn't work to any one of them. Because Robert Monroe did not develop this method from the level of ignorance and incapacity. He was born with it already. And in a stupid way, he believed that it would be as easy for everybody as it would be for him. You just roll like this. Try, roll, try to roll. Every night when you go to bed, try to roll. And let's see how many of you become astral project. Ah, if you do yoga nidra every night. If you use mantras, if you use additional technologies, of course everybody can do astral projection. But the Robert Monroe is a wonderful astral projector and a lousy teacher. Mahananda Mai is a great yogini and a lousy teacher. She can't teach you how to wake up. Because she was born woken up. Jiddu Krishnamurti, when he died, he had zero pupils. And in the last interview which he gave to I forgot whom, I, for one of his famous interviews, it's all recorded with Krishnamurti, he says, I have spoken for 70 years and nobody understood me. Then you should have fucking shut up, you are an idiot. Because if you spoke for 70 years and nobody understood you, you are a loser. As a teacher, you are a fiasco. Swami Shivananda was an ignorant man until the age of 35 when his wife died. He started yoga at the age of 36. He did yoga like crazy for 10 years. And he became a great guru and enlightened being. And when Swami Shivananda died, he claimed that 34 of his disciples had reached states of samadhi. Jiddu Krishnamurti spoke for 70 years and got zilch. Paramahamsa Ramakrishna, who had a state of samadhi when he was 6 or 7, so he was almost there. He got 12 disciples. Swami Shivananda, who is the most modest of them, like he didn't have a state of samadhi when he was 5. Swami Shivananda got 34. So out of them, it's topsy-turvy. The one who was most enlightened as a child was most inefficient as a teacher, and the one who had to really fight hard, that one became a real good teacher, a motivating teacher. Jesus is such a motivating spirit, that for me, I believe that Jesus went through the process of forgetting and remembering. Because then he understood the nature of forgetting and the nature of remembering. People don't understand it. I have heard so much nonsense in some literature that people make their big eyes. Like, did Swami Vivekananda just say that 99% or more, they actually don't remember they are in this category? Yes. That's what it is. The people like Mahananda Mai and Jiddu Krishnamurti and even Ramana Maharishi, they are a minority. You cannot rely on that. If you expect that you were enlightened when you were a child and this is how it is, that's a total minority. 
the, what the majority of the spiritual people are is that they are ignorant, normal, with some exceptional qualities, but still quite normal people, and they are characterized by a great curiosity, and they are characterized by a sort of a restlessness, like they want to know the truth, and they know that what you learn in school, what the family told you, is not quite the whole truth, that there must be something else. So, I personally think that Jesus is in that category. Remember the people who started from a comfortable spiritual realization, paradoxically they have proven to be very ineffective as teachers. Maybe wonderful as human beings. I'm not saying anything bad about Krishnamurti or uh, Mahananda Mai as human quality, as person. But as teachers, very uninspired. Not knowing how to start from where the people are when they start. This being said, the story with Jesus, which comes here, says that they found Jesus. Jesus was, people were amazed around him. Like, where did this kid come from? And why is he so bright? So Jesus was a, t- a little spiritual genius already at the age of 12. He understood. He asked the relevant questions. Like he was insightful. And then the gospel says that when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Like they found him in the temple. They would have wanted to find him in a kindergarten or something. They found him in the temple. They thought he would go with kids. He would go to the police station, if there was any police station in those days, to say, hey, I got lost from my parents or something. But he was in the temple. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Like, of course, the parents wouldn't say, we have been absent-minded, and we actually, when we left Jerusalem, we forgot to check up that you are in the group, you know. They said, why did you do this to us? Like, he was guilty. That's what the family always does, and people do. You are the one who is guilty, and so on. And Jesus gives an answer, which is very pure, very radical and uncompromising in his style, which will appear in the future. And of course, for a child of 12, the answer is a little bit big-headed or arrogant. You know, like, uh, sure, you know, like now you didn't need... But it's like a bit of a cold shower. It's shine. Something is shining. Like you can see, whoa, you know, what kid that I know would give such an answer. That's perhaps the first or one of the first recorded sayings of Jesus. And he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Like, you should have come straight here because you should know that I belong to God and therefore I will be in God's temple because I'm made for this. I'm cut for this. This is my future anyway. Very straight, but still... A bit like in modern times, somebody would say, don't talk back to me, Jesus. You know, you are a naughty boy and you haven't been with us. You know, like he's talking back. Yeah, why did you have to say, didn't you know I was with like, okay, now he's playing smart. It's a little bit as a kid, you'd say, well, if that was wisdom, it was a bit of a 
impolite wisdom, you know, like he could have simply said, Mom, Dad, forget about it, I'm glad you found me, but he just wanted to serve them a lesson, you know. Well, Jesus is a great server of lessons in, the, in his mission, but of course he doesn't do it egocentrically. When he was a child at 12, he was just a child at 12. There were lots of things which he didn't know about life, which he didn't know about a lot of things, and therefore the answer is coming a little bit blunt like this, but under the bluntness and clumsiness of this answer, you can see that something is shining, like only one child in a billion would give such an answer. Like Yogananda, when he was seven years old, he wanted to go and live with yogis in the Himalaya, and he and one of his friends, they just jumped in a train, and of course, the railway company caught them 100 kilometers later, packed them, and sent them back to their home. Like, boys, what are you doing alone on the railway, you know? But, like, how many kids did you hear that they wanted to go and become yogis in the Himalaya? Even in India, at the age of seven. I mean, I mean kids want to be firemen. Kids want to become policemen. They want to become doctors. They want to become... Airplane pilots. No, anybody wants to be a yogi? Obviously there was something in the samskaras of Yogananda that a kid at seven who didn't have a specially yogic family, just a normal Hindu religious family but not specially yogic, would say, yeah, yeah, I'm gone. I'm to Himalayas together with little Walter here. We go to the Himalayas to the caves. No. So yes, you can see special people about some people with spirituality. Maybe there is something in your lives as well. No, not always. Don't look for like, oh, if you didn't have any glimpse of genius when you are seven years old, it means you are not made for yoga. That's completely not true. There are many gurus who when they were 16 years old, they were pretty normal people. Again, with some qualities, I'm saying that the emptieth time, like yes, but still not more than just highly developed, that's all. And then spirituality came on top of that as an awakening, as a remembrance. And after he gives this cheeky answer, the text says, uh, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Like, you know, like if the parents are not there, They'll say, yeah, yeah, sure, stop raving, let's go back to Nazareth. And, you know, like it was just a funny episode, like a weird episode from the standpoint of the family that they lost the kid, they feel guilty, they came back and they made him feel guilty, and he gave them the finger and he said, but I'm in the house of my father, you should have known. And like, okay, okay, let's forget this, let's just go back to Nazareth, you know. It's just a, one of those weird things, like we'd better not think too much about it. So, this fact is very important for you to remember. The forgetfulness can be so heavy that even highly developed spirits will not remember sometimes. We have a big example, like Ramakrishna is supposed not to be just a huge Yogi, the prince of the yogis, and other such things. Ramakrishna is actually suspected by many people that he was a minor avatar, like Krishna or something. So, like he was really, really big 
on the scale of events and so on. And Ramakrishna, he had a few states, like when he was six years old or something, he saw some beautiful aesthetic scene and then he fainted with delight and he entered into a raw form of samadhi, not the high ultimate forms of samadhi, but into some primitive form of, into some simplified form of samadhi, just because of aesthetic pleasure. Because he looked at the nature, and then he fainted at six, at the age of six. How many children did you hear that they saw a beautiful sunset and they fainted? If, if you know such a kid, that's probably Ramakrishna number two. No? So it's like it's seldom. He was very sensitive and very, and so on. This Ramakrishna, who obviously knew what the matter is, and who had to do 12 years of puja to Kali, to reach enlightenment, like Ramakrishna was really working hard, it took him more than 12 years to reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi, because after he reached Samadhi with Kali, it took him a few more years until he met with his second guru, Totapuri, and that one taught him the Vedantic meditation, and then he reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So Ramakrishna took probably around 16 years to reach to Samadhi, and he was Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna himself had a legendary disciple who made history in Indian spirituality, and who is the exact counterexample or the exact example of what I'm trying to demonstrate here at this point of my presentation, of my discourse. I'm talking about the great Swami Vivekananda, my namesake, who lived 120 years ago and who is one of the big, big yogis of 19th, 20th century India. And I like to call him Swami Vivekananda the Great. Swami Vivekananda the Great was in a very peculiar situation when he met Ramakrishna. Swami Vivekananda the Great was from an aristocratic family, and in India that matters a lot. Being in an aristocratic family, Kshatriya, being from a Kshatriya family, which is the families of the kings and of the Rajas and Maharajas, and this, uh, he was well educated, he was scientifically minded, he held some university or higher education degrees in those days. And he was a rationalist, which is a polite way of saying that he was pretty much of an atheist. He didn't believe in God. Moreover, astrologically he was a Capricorn. Don't get afraid if you are Capricorns here in the crowd. But Capricorn being an earth sign is sometimes a little bit more dull. Like if it's exactly like you have a soft metal and a hard metal. And if you want to shape them into something, you have to hit the hard metal more with a hammer simply because it's less flexible, it's less malleable, and it yields with more difficulty. So in the same way, sometimes when your nature is very heavy, like the earth element in astrology, you have to hit it harder before you get the results. So what somebody will get in three years of yoga practice, you'll get in six years of yoga practice. Are there benefits? Yes, but I don't want to go there. This is a characteristic of each element, of each typology, and it largely surpasses the purpose of this satsang 
here. Point is that Swami Vivekananda the Great was kind of atheistic, rationalistic. He was very opaque, like he couldn't see the light. You know, he was very like, if you show me, if it hits me in the face, I will believe it. If not, no. No, like he didn't have too much subtle sensitivity. He was not very refined. He was like a, you know, like a bloke head, like a rough person, not very chiseled, not very, although he had a good education. And he was in a terrible dilemma because in him there was spiritual aspiration. He heard about some people in Calcutta that in North Calcutta there is this crazy guy called Ramakrishna who is supposed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the Messiah of India, some amazing stuff. He went and saw him. He was tickled, like, oh my God, you know, this man, I've never seen anybody like that. And then the other half of him said, yeah, but this guy is nuts. This guy is totally nuts. Like, you, you can't really take seriously what this man is saying. His rationalistic core was like, oh my God, no, 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 no. And some part of him said, oh yes, 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 this is the real thing. And he was like one step forward, one step backward, one step forward. One th- there was something in Ramakrishna which fascinated him. And there was something in Ramakrishna which scared him to death. And he would not budge. He would not like, he would not go. There were disciples of Ramakrishna who said, okay, sir, tell us what to do. And Ramakrishna said, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening, you meditate with the mantra, Aum, and I'm teaching you how. Like he gave them some tapas. He gave them some sadhana. Like here in the school, no, you learn yoga level 1, level 2, level 3, and you have something to do at home. There is a practice, and if you really want, you do it. And if you are just a theoretician and a philosopher, you just come and go to level 15 in Agama, and at home you are not doing anything. Because you don't really want to. If you want to, you do it at home. You are burning for it, and you find a way to do what is really, really attractive to you, what is really serving your purpose. It's like Buddha would have wanted to find the answer to the questions of life, but he would have forgotten to sit under that tree. No, if you are a Buddha, it's part of this that you sit under that tree every day and you do your meditation. So Vivekananda, the great Vivekananda, he was not yet motivated to do practice. He was fascinated by Ramakrishna, but he was not motivated to do practice. And uh, the rift, the tension in him was growing. I anticipate Ramakrishna later a few years later, declared that when he saw Vivekananda first times, he realized pretty soon that Vivekananda, that Vivekananda in a previous life had been a great, great, great yogi, a great, great spirit. That great spirit Ramakrishna saw him that he was one of the Sapta Rishis, one of the seven Rishis that created the Vedic tradition. That's huge. 
That's huge. The whole Vedic tradition is originally based on seven great rishis, sages, seven great sages, which are the foundation of whatever happened afterwards with Ramayana and Mahabharata and all the all the all of India came from the Shapta Rishis and then this support of Rama in Ramayana, of Krishna in Mahabharata. That's the backbone of the Indian culture, soul, and spirituality. And Ramakrishna said, this guy Vivekananda was one of the Saptarishis. But if he was one of the Saptarishis, then he's supposed to be an enlightened being. And now he's coming and visiting you, and he speaks shit about you. He says you are crazy. He doesn't meditate. He does So... This is what I'm trying to tell you. According to Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda the Great was a very enlightened high spirit who, when he was born as a child in the 19th century India, in Calcutta, forgot everything. Not by mistake. Just because that's how things are. By design. 99% of the spiritual beings that are being born, in the beginning they are behaving like almost normal children. They are just like every Tom, Dick and Harry. With some interesting signs to them. <coughs> like when Tibetans find the Tulku Lamas, the little kids that are supposed to be incarnation of great Lamas, they ask them some questions. They look at the body. They do some tests because they know that if a kid is truly a very spiritual person reborn, by the time that kid is two years old, three years old, four years old, five years old, the family would have noticed something. That this kid is a bit unusual. But you can't really say how unusual. Maybe the kid is just autistic or something. That's also unusual, but it's an unusual in a not so bright way. So... Yes, what I'm telling you here is perfectly right. Great spirits can be born on earth, and that's happening all the time, and they will forget who they were, and they will be a bit special, but not more than that. And some of them will have to work hard. Remember, Ramakrishna did spiritual search for 15, 16 years before he reached full spiritual awakening. And he was Ramakrishna. And Vivekananda was so fed up, this back and forth, like, I like Ramakrishna, oh, I hate Ramakrishna, oh, I like Ramakrishna, oh, I'm completely fed up with Ramakrishna, that at some point he reached to a limit, lucky, that he was a straightforward person and lucky that Ramakrishna didn't mind these kind of things because he was a great yogi and lucky that at least Vivekananda trusted Ramakrishna and was open to him. And one day Ramakrishna was telling him something and you know, then Vivekananda said, you know what, sir, um, I have to tell you something. You know, it's like really honestly, right now, I would simply say that you are nuts. You know, it's like, I mean, excuse me, you know, I know you are enthusiastic and this, but to me, you are mental. You, you are a nutcase. Like he told to the man who was his guru, 
He told him, you are crazy. So much his disbelief was going, like so much the conflict was. And then something paradoxical happened, which again, seldom happens in spirituality. We hear it once in a thousand years. Like people don't do it much in spirituality. Ramakrishna, because he saw the value, he saw this man, this young man is a diamond. This young man is one of the Saptarishis. If this young man wakes up, I will have somebody to give him my mantle when I die. If this young man wakes up, India will make a hundred years progress immediately, you know. It's like there will be a great benefit. So I can't lose this man just because he is not having confidence. Like he really felt like Vivekananda would be a great investment, a great asset. And then he did something crazy. He just stretched his leg and touched him like this with his foot. They were sitting on the floor like in India. And when he touched him with his foot, Vivekananda went in Samadhi, put him in Samadhi instantaneously. That's not a matter of spiritual practice anymore. Right? That's a fucking miracle. You know, like Vivekananda simply said, you know what, enough of this bullshit. And just gave it to him like this. And then Vivekananda, the skeptical, was like, (laughs) gone. And he stayed three days. Ramakrishna kept him in Samadhi three days, you know, like to give him the full Monty. You know, like no more bullshit, not like me coming, like go for it. He gave him, and people were coming and said, but what happened to Kumar or Mohan or whatever he was called in his name? Because he got called Vivekananda later. At that time he was called some Indian name. Mukunda or whatever his name was, it doesn't matter. You know? And uh, people were coming and Ramakrishna was there doing his thing and this guy was like a stone. Hours, 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 then tomorrow, still there, you know, like not pissing, not cheating, not eating, not drinking, just like stoned completely. And people said, what's happening to Kumar or something? And Ramakrishna always told them, leave him, leave him. He was asking about this too much. And now he's tasting it and he can see what it is, you know, and he'll give me some, he'll give me a break finally, you know, with all his stupid uh, doubts and so on. No, this is not happening too often, but... Please realize, a man who was supposed to be one of the Shaptarishis, therefore born as an enlightened being already. Not like Buddha. Remember, Buddha was not an enlightened being when he was born. Buddha was 99% of a Buddha when he was born. But in his life, like Gautama Buddha, it's declared clearly in Buddhism, I'm not doing any offense to Buddha, it's declared that that was the first life when Gautama Buddha reached Nirvana. So it was his first life as a Buddha. First time when he reached it. Where for Vivekananda the Great, this life in the 19th century which he lived, which is for which he is famous, it was not his first life as a Buddha. He had been a Buddha even 5,000 years ago when he was one of the rishis. So he was born as an enlightened being with a necessary forgetfulness. It was planned that he will become a spiritual seeker and that he will remember. But even that is not 100% sure because the future depends on a lot of choices that we make. And therefore, there are metaphysicians, and in the group of Ramakrishna, 
It was said, you know, if Ramakrishna didn't touch him with the foot, would Vivekananda may have made it to Samadhi? Or he would have continued being a bullshit skeptic person going one step forward, one step backward, and so on. No? We don't know. So it is possible that a person who was born enlightened, if they have a very impure and difficult body with a strong ego and a very strong reason, that person doesn't even manage to remember who they were before they were born. And then people say, I mean, of course, this opens the door to endless questions. Because people say, oh, so if he was enlightened and he came here and he didn't remember and he didn't meet with Ramakrishna and he didn't remember he was enlightened and he didn't practice and then one day he dies. Is he again prisoner in samsara? No. When he dies, then he realizes all of it and then he says, oh, shit, I've been in a life where I forgot to get enlightened again. I forgot to remember my enlightenment. So basically I lost a hundred years. I was there for nothing. I just ate and slept and had sex and converted oxygen into carbon dioxide. But I forgot to do what I was going to do because I had a plan. I had a dream. You know? And because I kind of didn't... Ma- Is it possible for an enlightened being to live a life where somehow they don't manage to break through? There are cases, for example, one of my gurus was of the opinion that the American poet and philosopher Walt Whitman was such a case. That Walt Whitman was an ex-great yogi who even had states of samadhi and he was not sure if he was crazy or enlightened and he didn't pursue it. Like Walt Whitman should have meditated with the mantra Aum and he should have done the shirshasana, the headstand, you know. But there was nobody to tell him, Walt, you are made for this shit, man. Wake up. Do it, you know. Do what Buddha did. Sit under a tree and because you are 90% there already. Somehow it didn't happen and everything stayed in the twilight zone. So don't think that enlightenment is guaranteed. Even if you are enlightened and you get born, you may forget and that forgetfulness may hold. And then when you die, you recover because enlightenment is a permanent condition in the big picture. But you remember too late. So it is possible that here on earth, even great spirits are subjected for a while to forgetfulness. This episode with Jesus, which is the first episode that we looked into, the, the spark when he was 12 years old, shows that there was something really great in him, that he was uncompromising, direct, that he had a sort of uncanny intuition that this was what a human being should do. And, but if it demonstrates that he already knew, I personally, as a yogi, this is not something which we can demonstrate, it's never been stated clearly, but I personally would say, Probably not. Probably not fully. He just had a very, very great lucidity and a very, very great aspiration. And in the years which came between 12 and 30, when we see him again, then this process of awakening has happened. 
if this process took that actually he sat down and meditated, or it just came as he became a teenager and he grew up and spontaneously or some that we don't know. There is a lot of speculation and we don't know how did Jesus come back to this thing of being Jesus. But obviously a big shock was for him what is happening next, which is about meeting with John the Baptist. Because meeting with John the Baptist, that's when he clicks into it. The, that's why the next paragraph, I will go on a little bit more. Um, usually we do 8.30, 10.30. If I start 15 minutes late, I would like to give you that time and maybe stay until 10.45 or something. So um, I hope it doesn't get too late for you. Um, the next thing which I found in the Gospel of Luke, like the next event or story, which is not directly about Jesus, but tells us something about the teachings of that time, is that it mentions John the Baptist. Because the next step is that Jesus goes to John the Baptist and gets baptized by him. Which is a topsy-turvy action, because Jesus is much, much bigger than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is just a dude, and Jesus is something else. And um, But we have to understand something of the context. The text of the Gospel tells us something about this teachings of him. And before I quote some of the teachings which are mentioned here, John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. So in the same year, just six months earlier, the pregnancy of the mother of John the Baptist and the pregnancy of Mary were almost overlapping each other. Three months of it was overlapping. And the John the Baptist was actually a cousin of Jesus, was somehow family related to Jesus. We don't know if in those missing 18 years they had some contact or not. Today there is a lot of New Age speculation. Please, I repeat this word, speculation. There is absolutely no scientific proof about these kinds of statements. That John the Baptist was a great teacher belonging to the Essene community from Qumran. And that Jesus came there later. And that Jesus was an Essene, an Essenian or whatever you want to call him as well. There is no absolute evidence about this. This is, this kind of stuff has emerged in the last 30 years as part of the New Age subculture and there are many poisonous thorns mixed up in this salad uh, because some of the New Age people want to demonstrate some, demonstrate some things which are not quite kosher and therefore they use it more like a confusing thing like we don't know, it was like this and like that. Fact is that when Jesus meets with John, John's jaw is dropping. Like, ah? So it's like not that they have been together six months before and they kind of frequented each other. It's like John sees Jesus like, oh my God. No, it's a surprise. And also, John immediately declares himself shadow and dust compared to Jesus. Like he, he uses the famous sentence where he says, I'm not worthy to 
tie your shoelaces, to tie your sandals, you know. Like I can't be even in your slave or servant compared to what you are. So John the Baptist has this incredible insight. He is truly a prophet. He is a seer. So when he sees Jesus, he is one of the very few people who can actually see. And um, therefore, the fact that uh, John the Baptist would have been a teacher of Jesus or something, it seems to me from a yogic standpoint, like a teacher, a guru or something, it seems to me like complete nonsensical. There is nothing in the Gospels, including in the Gospel of Thomas and the, you know, the other, the unusual Gospels, there is nothing which takes us to that point. I like to read this kind of literature and see, understand things, and it seems to me totally speculative and speculative with a purpose, speculative with an ulterior motive to introduce John and then to put in the mouth of John all sorts of other things which are again are non-verifiable and so on. So what it appears is that John was a miracle kid born when his father was not supposed to have children anymore and his mother was not supposed to have children anymore. So he's a bit of a miracle kid born as a sign from God, you know, like everybody said, come on, this is impossible. And this miracle kid, which was also another exceptional spirit, when he was young, he became a prophet. We don't know if Jesus was geographically in that area also or not. We know that John went into the desert and he started preaching and being, going in the footsteps of the prophets of yore. So by the time Jesus is 30, and either he comes back from India, or he comes back from Egypt, or he just wakes up from Nazareth and says, okay, now it's time for me to start. Whichever is the trigger, in the moment when Jesus goes and he hears, he knows about John, and he wants to meet him because he realizes that's part of what's going to happen. It's his intuition is right. And therefore, he goes to attend to this famous John who started earlier. If Jesus started doing something public, at least in Israel, when he was 30, John started doing stuff in Israel when he was 20. So he had uh, already 10 years or something of intense spiritual activity. So what was, first of all, John doing? It's important because Jesus takes the mantle. There is a continuity there from the old prophets. And um, John the Baptist is considered to be like in Christian mysticism, John the Baptist is considered to be the greatest man on earth. Because Jesus was not a man. Jesus was God. So John the Baptist, in, of course, what about uh, Dogen in Japan? But they didn't know about Dogen. Don't ask silly questions. They knew about the people in their pool of people there. 
all these religions are growing up in a very narrow pool and they don't claim that they have crystal balls to know if there was some great sage or enlightened being in the Andes in South America, you know, and so on. They don't talk. If there was, there was, but we don't talk about it because we don't know about it. We know about our folks. So in our group of people and so on, in this group of people, John the Baptist is considered to be greater in the Christian mysticism again, is considered to be greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than any prophet. First of all, for one thing, because he's the one who was chosen to give the baptism to Jesus, and also because he had the modesty and the humbleness to immediately recognize Jesus. Like normally, he was a successful person. Oh, people were coming to him and said, John, save me, baptize me. How big does your ego become when you do that 10 years every day and you start thinking you are some smart guy? And then Jesus comes and suddenly it's like, whoa, you know, it's like pranam, Jesus, G, you know, I want to touch your feet and so on. You know, it's like Jesus doesn't like him to do, doesn't let him do that, but he immediately sees it. And because of this, and because he is the one, the living prophet of the day, who confirmed Jesus, because of this, John the Baptist in the Christian ghetto, in the Christian astral ghetto, in the community, in the egregore of the Christian saints and mystics, John the Baptist has a very privileged function. There is Virgin Mary, who is very privileged because she is the mother of Jesus, and her function was outstanding, And then there is John the Baptist. On the feminine side, on the masculine side, these are like the top ones. So, John the Baptist was preaching the famous repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Which simply says, like sometimes when you come with me in questions and answers, or in some satsangs and so on, I am complaining about various flaws of the modern world. That in the modern world, even yoga has become a shitty gymnastics, and it's not yoga anymore. That in the modern yoga, people don't do this. That in the modern, yo- in the modern uh, world, not yoga, uh, the society is skewed, and the values are reversed, and uh, a religious person who is a Sufi, can look like a fanatic Muslim, while an idiot like George W. Bush is a model citizen and a role model. You know, like the devil looks nice, and somebody who is really spiritual may look like scary or extreme. Like the values are reversed. So it's not only John the Baptist who has this thing that many metaphysicians, many teachers, have witnessed that as Kali Yuga goes more and more dense, the world is becoming more and more shitty. And some things which a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago were clear, now they are not clear anymore. No, it's, no there are so many things. And of course, if you bring them up, they can produce endless amount of discussions. Revolt, riot, you know, it's like I was looking at some news now with some dialogues about abortion or no abortion for women in Northern Ireland or something like this. 
No? But ultimately an abortion means that there is a human being coming to the world and that human being disturbs you. Because you won't be free if you let that human being come. And then you kill that human being. No? It's like there can be a very tough view on abortion if you look at it very, you know, like your mother nature gives you a child and you say, now this will mean that I'm going to be a slave for the next 18 years. I don't want that. I want to fuck freely, travel freely, do whatever I want. So I kill this one. It is. It's, it's definitely not a very natural and pro-life type of act, you know. So perhaps a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, people would have been much more adamant about these things. Today, everybody agrees like, hey, what have you got? You know, people want to have fun. Yeah. And then do we put up with killing their own offspring just because they want to be free? No, what, and then we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? What would Buddha say? You know, it's all, and the modern society has very little Vishuddha chakra. It's very impure in this way. Like people are not puritanic. And if somebody says, no, go by the Quran. Go by the... People say, come on, you are a fundamentalist. You are a fanatic. Those are written a thousand years ago. You can't go... You know? So the question is, should you stay puritanic, fundamentalistic, or like Jesus in all he does, and in this environment here in the Bible, these people are very fundamentalistic and very puritanic. And John the Baptist makes no difference. He says the world has gone wrong. The same thing was said by Greek philosophers, and in the 20th century, there are at least two of the great metaphysicians of the 20th century who wrote to the same effect, to the same meaning. Like Julius Evola, controversial Italian metaphysician, he has a famous book which is called Revolt Against the Modern World. Revolt. Like he is revolted by the modern world. He says, people, stand up. The modern world is a shame. No, revolt. He is revolted by the modern world. And René Guénon, the great French metaphysician René Guénon, he wrote a book in parallel which is called uh, The Reign of Quantity. The Reign of Quantity, like the modern world is not looking at quality, but at quantity. You know, it's like it doesn't matter how you made your first million, it matters that you have a million and you can drive a Rolls Royce. Then people kiss your ass or whatever. You have facilities. But it doesn't matter how it was done or what's the quality there. So he uh, again writes a word against the modern world. That the modern world is ruled by the rule of quantity. It's quantity, not quality anymore. So it's not new. What I'm trying to say is that what John the Baptist was doing 2,000 years ago, it's not new. Every time there are prophets and seers and fundamentalists and conservatives and puritanic people who complain about the fact that the human being, that the human race is making rabat, is making compromises to the quality and is going down. And says, yeah, yeah, okay, let's also do that. You know? And then somebody like John the Baptist goes through the roof and says, people, are you crazy? Repent. 
You are full of sins. You are living in a world which is corrupted. And if you want to avoid burning in hell, you should stand up and do something radical. No, don't go like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, we live in a corrupted world and so on. And maybe we should give some alms to the poor. John the Baptist says that's not enough. No, just a little bit of karma yoga that you give some alms to the poor is not compensation enough for the shit in which you live. You have to do something more radical. And that something more radical, according to John the Baptist, is repent, change your ways, do something. And as a symbol of this, he gives them a symbolic thing, which you'd say, well, if it's a symbol, it doesn't work. Symbols do work. And he gives them a baptism. But he tells them, this baptism which I give, he tells it with other words you'll see, he says, this baptism which I give is a symbol. Because he says, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me, he is baptizing you with fire and Holy Spirit. And he says, like, that's the real deal. What I'm doing here is a surrogate, until that other fellow is coming. And it's a sort of a symbol. And people say, but does it work? Yes. Because it's exactly like a rite of passage. The rites of passage work on the reptilian brain. They work on the primitive brain of the human being. Hypothalamus, amygdala, all those parts. Hippocampus and so on. And they produce a very strong emotional reaction. And people make a ritual. And they take a pledge. And then they start a tapas. And then their life is changed. So John the Baptist is a sort of a good psychologist because he creates a sort of spontaneous ritual of baptism. And he says, with this ritual, change your life. Do we have the guarantee that if a thousand people get baptized by John the Baptist, they all change their lives? No, probably 500 of them relapsed in the customs and habits of the daily society as soon as they went back home. But it is possible that the other 500 became more fundamentalistic, more fanatic or something, which again are very scary words. But John was trying to defend some values which he felt were going bust. At the time of John the Baptist, Rome was ruled. When John the Baptist was born, the year zero, John the Baptist, uh, I'm sorry, the Roman Empire was run by an epileptic called Julius Caesar. The Greek civilization was drowning in confusion and other things which are controversial. The Egyptians were dead spiritually. Moses had beaten the shit out of them a thousand years ago already. The Babylonians and all the other Gentiles in the area, they were terrible. Even when Muhammad came six centuries later, he found them in a state where they were worshipping some black stones fallen from the sky, you know, and, and so on. Like it was really, really primitive. All the area was primitive. And the Jews who in the middle of all this caboodle were the only monotheistic religion who were supposed to have some spine. It's true that they had some Manipura and some law and some rules, but they had lost very much the heart and the spirit of it. 
And because of this, the kings of the Jews, like Herod, Antipas, and those, as well as the rabbis, the priests of the Jews in those days, they were very, very selfish, Manipura, Ajna, dominantly Manipura type of people, bent on power, on ruling the masses and exploiting them, like Karl Marx, who says that religion is the opium of the people. Yes, the rabbis were selling the opium to the masses, you know, and therefore everything was very corrupt. Even Judaism was very, very low. Don't forget that the Jews, for those of you who know the Jewish history and look at it from a Jewish perspective, or all, the Jews had an instrument of contact with God from the old days called the Ark of Alliance. Like in that funny movie with Indiana Jones and the lost Ark, right? Where is that Ark? That Ark was lost 500 years before Jesus. They didn't even have it. Today there is journalistic speculation that maybe it's hidden in a church in Ethiopia or something like that. Like nobody knows. Like you have the Ark of Alliance which is the symbol of the contact with God and 500 years before Jesus you lost it. But you know in the army every military unit has a flag. And if the flag is stolen or destroyed or lost on the battlefield that military unit is closed. It's cancelled. It's like the honor of the whole military unit is in having your flag. If you lose your flag, you are dishonored and you cease to exist as a military unit. How do you have a symbol that in your temple there is an instrument of communicating with God, but you lost it 500 years ago? Then it means you are not communicating with God anymore. No? And then... At this time you have one like John the Baptist. Of course John the Baptist is very bitter and very angry and very fiery because he can see that the society is going down. The rich, well-educated Jews, they were going in the footsteps of the Romans. They were speaking Greek language. They were, you know... They were becoming cosmopolitan just like in the 19th century the rich Indians... They didn't want to do yoga, like Ramakrishna told them to do. They wanted to go to Oxford and Cambridge, and they would pay lots of money for the rich Indian kids to go educated in Great Britain. The Indians wanted to be sahibs. They didn't want to be Indians. Even the Jews wanted to be Romans. Like even Paul, the future apostle of Christ, was a Roman citizen. It's exactly like people who say, why live in Albania, when you can get a visa, a green card, and go and live in America. Go and live where the action is. The action was not in Israel anymore. Israel was a peripheric state somewhere, where not, and the religion was down, and people were morally corrupt. And John the Baptist noticed that, and Jesus double noticed that. So don't be surprised by the language of John, by the attitude of John. A little bit more to go, about 15 minutes. He, he quoted the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. That's how John defined himself. He said, who are you? They asked him. And he said, I am a voice crying in the desert. 
Like somebody says, people, make straight your ways. But who are you? I'm a voice crying in the desert. Which means nobody listens to me. Nobody hears me. I'm a voice crying in the desert. It's the wind and the desert that pays attention to my words. I'm not crying in the middle of a town. I live in the desert and I'm just a marginal madman who lives in the desert. And I'm a voice crying in the desert. There is at least somebody who dares to tell the truth. No? So he says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Because what an honor. Still, it was for the monotheistic Jews of Israel to receive the visit of God. Realize that if you realize that Jesus was an avatar, what happened is that God in person visited Israel 2,000 years ago and walked through the dust of their footpaths. Why didn't he come to France? Why didn't he go to Ethiopia? Oh, there must be some reason. There must be some higher reason. And therefore, that's why John says, like, you are going to get a great honor which you don't deserve. We are all fallen and unworthy. At least if somebody would listen to this voice crying in the desert and like make straight the ways of God, at least a few people should still have a heart. At least a few people should still have some purity here because it's like otherwise we're just going to burn, you know. We're just going to be totally unworthy of this thing which is happening. And then he says something beautiful and metaphysical and scary. He says every valley, but he doesn't say, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, a prophet who lived 350 years before those days. Where prophet Isaiah says, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. It's a very interesting view, which is almost leveling things. No? Like from the standpoint of the divine, there are seven billion souls incarnated now on earth. All the seven billion souls are Shiva. They are God. Each one of the souls of the people living this time on earth is divine, is a spark of the fire of God. It's true that some of these spirits are liars, cheaters, murderers, tyrants, rapists, idiots, and all sorts of things. That's the mask, that's the persona. So some people are very rich, some people are very poor, some people look like very virtuous, and some people look like not. But look at a tree. Sometimes we talk about the tree of life, like a metaphor of the universe, that the universe, life itself, is the tree of life. But on a tree, you have the bark, which is rough and scratchy. You have the roots, which are dirty with earth. And then you have flowers as well. And the flowers, you go and see the cherry flowers, and you say it's like paradise. I saw 100 cherry trees with flowers, and it's like I was in paradise. But what about the roots, which are dirty and muddy? What about this bark, which is not very soft to touch and very pleasant? No, you look at the fruits because they are fragrant, beautiful, ephemeral, delicate, 
aesthetic. But there are other things. And so the tree has yin and yang, roughness and softness. And if you do at the average, you reach to a certain average. What Isaiah says here is that humanity has a certain average. It's almost like Isaiah and these people, they are like Marxistic or democratic. It's like they preach a sort of extreme democracy. Like the rich shall become poor, the poor shall be exalted, the sinners will become more virtuous, the virtuous will give away the top of their virtue, and everybody is a child of God. The whole humanity is the vessel of God. The whole humanity is the place of descent of God, of the divinity. In a certain way, of course, in the moment when Jesus himself says, I am all and everybody. Jesus calls himself the son of man. Therefore, humanity. He is the archetypal man. And Buddha, no, he calls himself, he calls the Bodhisattva ideal and he says, we are all one. We, again, they don't, Buddha doesn't literally say we are all one. But there is this idea expressed throughout all these metaphysical doctrines. Now, many people can say, yeah, we are all one. But then when somebody is really shitty and dirty and spoils your life, then you don't want to identify with that person. If we are all one, then you should give a hug to Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. You know? But you don't want to want to be one. And still we are. Hitler is not coming from another humanity and is parachuted on earth. He is still a, a thing on the same tree. This tree contains Ramakrishna and it contains Hitler as well. It's the same tree. And it's the same tree. And you know, you can say, oh, but uh, uh, the Jews don't like Hitler. Funny, they grow on the same tree. It's still the planet Earth which produced the Jews and Hitler and whatever else, you know. So it's still the same God, the same reality. Of course, people can say, but people don't have the same karma. They don't have the same virtue. They don't have the same outcome. Yes, that's perfectly true. But here... Isaiah the prophet and John the Baptist, they look at it skewed from a certain standpoint. From a certain standpoint, we are all one. And Jesus is right when he says, you gave me food, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was alone and you visited me. I was sick in the hospital and you healed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they are going to say, when? When did we do such great thing? Because we wish we did. And he says, truly I tell you that if you do it to the least of my brethren, to the last human being on this earth, you do it to me. Jesus says if you give food to a hungry person on the street, it is as if you gave food to me personally, Jesus. Therefore Jesus says, I'm like the last person on the earth. There is something which is common. We are all one indeed at a certain level. It's true that the life of a serial murderer like Jack the Ripper and the life of St. Teresa of Avila, they are like heaven and earth different from each other and the karma and the outcome. Exactly as the root, the muddy, dirty root of a tree, you touch it and then you have to wash your hands, is very different from the beautiful flower which lasts for 48 hours. But they are still the same tree. It's still part of the same tree, even if the world has stars and mud at the same time, in the same box. And that's why here, 
the prophet Isaiah reminds us that don't get too exalted by your ego because ultimately we are all spiritual beings. The spirit of the divinity exists in each and every one of us. And some of us might go to hell for a while and some of us might be very confused and do terrible things but still the divinity is present there in a game which is incomprehensible. If you try to understand it with the mind, you cannot. Thus, so quoting the prophet, another ten minutes, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Like, they were coming to him, saying, You are a prophet, you said that the world is fucked up. We agree with you on this one. And we want to be baptized and to change it. Like these were the good guys. Who really had the intention to do something good. And John the Baptist is so manipuristic in some way. That his first reaction is like. <laughs> you are the smart devils. Who are going to escape the punishment. You know like. I'm almost grudgy at you. You know, like, I'm happy that you come to change your ways, but in a certain way, like vipers, you know, who told you, you know, like, how comes you are so smart and you know that uh, a big change is coming? No? Strange reactions, Super strange reaction, it's almost a manipuristic, grudgy reaction in which you are almost envying your own children, like these people in a certain way, they are to become the spiritual children of John the Baptist. And his first reaction is not like, welcome, welcome, my dear, welcome to yoga, welcome to a new life. He says, huh, you're going to escape, fuck you, you know, it's like, you're really smart you are, you know. He's almost like, I wish I would have seen you biting the dust a little bit and suffering you know, because you deserve, you know, you are part of this rotten world. But somehow you are smart. In the last minute, somebody warned you. Your guardian angel whispered in your ear last night something. And now you are coming to see to me and saying, John, John, help us, you know. And then he basically, this manipuristic reaction is uh, the reaction of a desperate man. Is a reaction of a man who doesn't like compromise, you know. Is a reaction of like, I hope you are not giving me lip service. I hope you are not hypocrites and you are just not uh, histrionic, theatrical, you know, just giving me, I hope you really mean it, because if not, just a minute ago for me, you are part of the vipers. You are vipers, brood of vipers, you know, corrupt world. Like John is not at the Christ of the Bodhisattva, uh, you know, and of Jesus' Christ-like consciousness. Uh, John is a prophet of God, a manipuristic Jewish prophet of God. And he says, God is really pissed off at all of you. And I can see it coming big time. You know, like he is on a roll on his Manipura. But, of course, he is bright enough to see that some people want to change. And although he, you know, he grumbles at them, but of course... He saves them, he guides them, and as soon as Jesus shows up, then he's ready to take off his head, and he says, the day has come. And he insists, I would like to finish the words, another six, seven minutes to go, he is 
giving them some advice. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Later, Jesus will say, any tree is known by the fruits. Like John the Baptist says, I'm almost worried that your repentance is lip service. Produce fruit for God's sake. Like if you really repent, I want to see something one year from now. Like produce fruit. He's, he's almost worried that people are too corrupt and that even their repentance is maybe fake to a certain extent. Which means he is very bitter. He is a very bitter type. Of course, as you probably know, and so on, his end came short after this and he was beheaded by one of the Jewish kings of the time. So when you push it like this, then also the boomerang from the world is like this. Like if you try to sail a boat with five kilometers per hour, it produces a moderate pro wave. But if you try to sail a boat with 200 kilometers per hour, then the resistance of the water is huge. No? So this kind of intolerant people, like people who really take this path, it's like Jesus said, he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. If you want to kick the world in the balls, then be prepared that the world will kick you back hard. No? Like if you want to be a fiery prophet, be prepared to lose your head. No? Jesus himself took that mantle and he did, went for three years like a madman and he ended on a cross. And people say if Jesus would come today, he would not resist three years and a half. Jesus would, today, if Jesus would come and do what he did that time, he would be assassinated before three years and a half. So, um, that's of course, so he keeps on on his bitter, raving, manipura, like, you know, really zero tolerance, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. The Jews were pampering themselves by saying, we are the monotheistic people. God came to us. The father of our nation is Abraham. Abraham make a co made a covenant with God. Then Moses made another covenant with God. So we are somehow protected. John the Baptist says, you are lying to yourself. It's dead. It's gone. It's exactly like in India, somebody will say, I'm okay because I'm a Brahmin. But Buddha 25 centuries ago said you can shit on your being a Brahmin. It's worth nothing. If you think that being born as a Brahmin will save you from hell or from confusion, you are living in a dream. Just go ahead and see if it helps you with something. Here, John the Baptist says, guys, you are not Brahmins. The fact that you say, but we are the descendants of Abraham. Yeah, so what? says John the Baptist. It's nothing. That worked that time. Now it doesn't work. For I tell you, he says, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You know, He says you are not better than stones to God. God can take a stone and turn it into a child of Abraham. You know? Why do you think you are so valuable just because you have some DNA coming from Abraham. That's a superstition. He tells them, produce fruit. 
and he is really raving. He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The vision of John is terrible. John is like possessed by a terrible Shakti of Hinduism. You know, he's like enlivened by Bhairavi or Chinamasta or something, you know. Basically, he says, the axe is at your throat. He says, the axe is at the root of the tree. There's just one move to go. Clip. And that's it. He says, the axe is at the And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Like, basically, John has the vision that if you don't live a good life, God will piss on you, burn you into fire. If you don't produce good deeds... You go to the fire. It's like God says, this one is a fiasco. It goes to the, you know, we melt him again. Like you make a metallic piece in a, in a metallurgic industry, you know, and you pour the, and then it's wrong. And what do you do with it? You take the metal and you melt it again. And you say, let's, you know, like if you are not good, God says, another one, another one. This one is not good. No. He has an extremely manipuristic, extremely intolerant. This is a mixture of puritanic things on Vishuddha. John the Baptist has a lot of Vishuddha things, and there is also a lot of Manipura to it. It's a Manipura Vishuddha, not much Anahata. You'll see the difference with Jesus, who brings a lot of the Anahata, and although Jesus is more intolerant than John, or that way, or the same way, Nevertheless, the message of love makes things sound in a different way. John the Baptist, I'm not saying that he had no love or he was not loving. He probably understood love, but he manifested in his life, like he felt that his mission was to give to people a big scare and a cold shower, and therefore he shakes people really bad. He says it's the 11th hour Wake up, people. God is coming. You know, you are not prepared. You know, like the Boy Scout type of thing. Be prepared, you know, and so on. And he comes to them, and he's very intolerant in this way. And he threatens. We know that that's not true. Like, if a spirit is not good right now, the Tibetan yogis have told us, you die, and your karma is bad you are very animalistic, therefore inferior in your chakras and in the resonance on the lower chakras. You are like this. You are like that. So when you die, either you go to hell, to a nasty place. For those of you who did art of dying or who did metaphysical workshop, you probably understand better because I don't have time to go into all the details of it. But in the afterlife, in the astral world, there are many nasty places which can be called hells, the world of the pretas, of the hungry ghosts, the world of the demons, or of the asuras, the world of the titans, as the Greeks called it, and other astral realms, <coughs> which can be highly unpleasant. Even in the astral world of the animals. No? Instead of you going to the people and your dog going to the dogs, you love your dog so much that you find yourself together with a million dogs in the afterlife. And you say, what the heck am I doing here? There are no people, you know? I'm surrounded by dogs. No? Then that's an inferior place. It can't make you happy. Not ultimately. Not as a human being, you know? Not as spirit. And therefore, the 
Tibetan yogis and others who have an advanced metaphysics, they would not go for a simplification like this. What does it mean that the axe is at the root of the tree? It doesn't mean that you are going to be fundamentally destroyed. It simply says you are not going to catch the train, the good train. There is a good train going from the railway station now in 20 minutes, and you have to catch it. If you catch that train, you go to paradise. You go to the next level. You go to salvation. You go to some sort of spiritual accomplishment. And if not, we cannot say that everything is lost. There will be another chance in 25,000 years. No? So it's not like everything is lost, lost, lost forever. It's simply that you didn't graduate now, you graduate next time. But John doesn't want to leave it like this. John is the fiery, intolerant thing, and he says it is as bad as if you are cut off. No, don't even take that into consideration. I want you to be scared shitless of that alternative. Don't come and say, ah, John, come on, man, chill out, you know. If we don't make it now, we make it next time. John is like, what? What? There is no next time. The axe is at the root of the tree and you are going to be thrown into the fire. You idiots. Don't even tell me about this. Like, he doesn't want to give you a soft alternative, which will be an excuse for laziness, for letting go. He wants 110% motivation. It's like, give me 110% right now. Don't give me excuses that you'll do it later or next time. This is a very productive way. That's why I say Jesus comes in this stream, in this streak of, in this way of thinking, and that's why, that's why Jesus, for some spiritual people, to get, it's very motivating. No, because it's like it's now or never, you know, don't give me the shit that I do it in the next life. You don't know if there is a next life. Now, 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 or never, you know, move your ass. There is no reason. If Buddha did it in six years, and if Ramakrishna did it in 16 years, why can't you? You can't simply because you don't want. That's the only truth to it. Because if you want, you will do it. No, is they have this intolerant thing. This intolerant thing, when you bring it to a person, either that person goes with you, or if not, they hate you and they turn against you. That's the price to pay. This kind of people, they push the envelope, Jesus did the same, and the people who can follow, they say yes, and the people who can't follow, they start hating the person who opened this box of Pandora in front of them, because it's like, you give me no choice. You make things black and white, and I hate you because you make things black and white, because I didn't manage to catch the good train, and then I'm falling on the black side. So it's, it's a very radical way of doing, which in other metaphysics, the Tibetans say, even if you kill 35 people like Milarepa, and still you can reach enlightenment. Even if you go to hell for 10,000 years, when the negative karma is finished, you will come out of hell, because there is no karma which lasts forever. Because if, if it lasts forever, it is as big as God. Only God lasts forever. And therefore karma, as bad as it is, even if you started a world war single-handedly, and still your karma will not last forever. 
It can last a million years, it can last a billion years, but still it will be over one day. And therefore, in other metaphysics, there is not this feeling of utter destruction, of utter termination, of eternity, of something negative. But John the Baptist has another pedagogic style. His pedagogic style is the pedagogic style of the prophets of the Old Testament who ruled by putting the fear of hell in people, you know. <coughs> they just may, and actually, it motivated people. Psychologically, sometimes it works in some ways. And I will continue next time because some people asked concretely, and it's the only gospel in which we have these quotes from John, there's a little bit to go, because different types of people, tax collectors and soldiers and others, they ask John, so what should we do in our job, in our line of work? And John tells them, pum, 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 like this. You do like this, you do like this. Like he tells them what he sees that could bring them salvation, which are the straight paths to God, which is very interesting. Of course, Jesus, John is right. John says, I'm an idiot compared to you, oh Jesus. I'm not worthy to tie your shoelaces, you know. Like you take over, and of course, Jesus takes it way to the next level. That's why you cannot really say that John the Baptist has been the guru of Jesus. It's a huge way of diminishing Jesus. Uh, there was John the Baptist who was a bit of a madman and was eating grasshoppers and whatever. And then there was Jesus who was this, you know, that puts Jesus down. But actually the correct perspective is that John the Baptist was a very enlightened, clairvoyant man who had the glimpse, who had the intuition that Jesus was what he was, and because of this he is very precious as a human being. He represents a very important bridge to the old Jewish spirituality, and as it gets extended in Jesus. Uh, enough of this for now. We spoke enough. I will continue with telling you, this was an intermezzo because I'm telling you a few things from John, but then after that we are back to Jesus and we continue with Jesus because we are interested mostly to see the actions and the deeds of Jesus, what kind of wisdom comes through him, what, how does he present the evolution, the life to the human beings that are interacting with him. So enough for tonight, we'll continue the next week, if everything is going as planned, with the next satsang. With this, we have finished. <laughs>